Welcome. My name is Patrick Curran, and along with my legally unleashed friend Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In this week's episode, Greg and I take advantage of a recently expired statute of limitations that legally allows us to talk about the multi-level model, what it is, when we might use it, and extremely cool extensions that it allows. Along the way, we also discuss hostile federal judges, McNeish, airing of grievances, Sesame Street, distributional baguettes, naivete, sentient GLMs, two pencil necks, Thor's hammer, Whitey Sutton, siren song, peer groups of two, fighting good for an old guy, 50 ducks, conceding a battle, and blushing corpses. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. You know what day it is? Dude, I hate it when you pop quiz me this early in the episode. Come on. It is Thursday. Now, this is my hint. We have been waiting for this day for two and a half years. It's Saturday? (laughs) (laughs) Two years, six months, and one day ago, the gag order was laid down that we could not talk about multi-level models. You remember the whole McNeish affair? McNeish. Yeah. So for those of you who maybe were not listening to us a hundred episodes ago, (laughs) Greg and I did an episode on teaching quantitative methodology, and we had a number of people call in who were experts in the field. Yep. And one of these was Dan McNeish, who is an appallingly talented quantitative methodologist at Arizona State University. And a great guy. We ran out of time, and we did not discuss Dan's contribution, and it got clipped and dropped on the editing floor. (laughs) Which we should probably do more of with the stuff that we say. (laughs) (laughs) Some supporters of Dan then voiced frustration (laughs) at that. And so Greg and I imagined what a trial would be had Dan leveled charges against us. We will play a brief summary of the court proceedings. Madam Foreperson, have you reached a verdict? You're goddamn right we have. What find you with regard to the first charge? Namely that Quantitude intentionally and with malice both failed to appreciate and willfully chose not to discuss a thoughtful and insightful contribution to the future of teaching episode made by the plaintiff, Dr. Daniel McNeish, also known to the court as Knuckles. Wicked guilty, Your Honor. And what find you with regard to the second charge? Namely that Quantitude... In subsequent social media posts, both implicitly and explicitly contributed to mocking the plaintiff's Boston upbringing and his alleged inability to say words starting with or substantially containing the letter R. Guilty as fuck, Your Honor. And what say you with regard to the third and final charge? Namely, that Quantitude is an embarrassment to the podcast community and at best should have stopped after, like, the fifth episode. Guilty. Will the defendants please rise? It is the wisdom of the impartial jury. Thanks again, Mary Elizabeth. That was great. You're totally welcome, Your Honor. That you have been found guilty on all three counts. Forthwith, you shall dedicate an entire episode of your so-called podcast in the careful weighing and discussion of his pearls of wisdom and crafting of the spoken word. Forthwith, in contrition for your willful mocking of his inability to use the letter R in any reasonable setting, you shall dedicate an entire second episode of your podcast to personally interviewing him about any of what I'm sure are brilliant papers. May the Lord have mercy on you two for excuses for academics. Um... <laughs> 
by legal bounds, we were not allowed to talk about multi-level modeling for two and a half years. So are you telling me that we are now free to discuss multi-level models? God bless statutes of limitations. Oh, is that one of the greatest inventions of all time? <laughs> it totally is. You know what I've always wanted? Could we apply statute of limitations to other parts of our life? <laughs> Right, is that you're talking with your partner and they raise something that you said and you say, honey, I am sorry, but statute of limitations, it's as if I never said that. Stuff gets brought up from years, like decades. <laughs> and honestly, it's not just your partner. When I came here to the university, there was a lot of bad sentiment in our college toward my particular department. And I remember asking a senior faculty member in another department, why do you guys hate us? His answer was, <laughs> in 1978. Come on. At some point, our hands shouldn't be tied like that. Didn't you just describe every Thanksgiving dinner ever had? <laughs> I got a lot of problems with you people. Now, you're going to hear about it. So you know what that means? We are actually free to talk about multi-level modeling all we want. Okay, buddy. Here is the outline that you and I came up with 11 <laughs> minutes ago. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> There's a statute of limitations on the plan. Dr. McNeish. <laughs> I bring to you an entirely ad-libbed episode on the multi-level model. Current unleashed. McNeish is near and dear to both Greg and me and came through University of Maryland, also came through University of North Carolina. He is now writing a paper a week at Arizona <laughs> State University in the quant psych program. Legally, we were forced to bring him onto the podcast. And then he proceeded to talk about why you don't need multi-level models. <laughs> he makes a number of exceedingly good observations about why you might not want to use a multi-level model and use other procedures instead. So here's what I would like to do. <laughs> First, it's entirely freeing to have no notes whatsoever. <laughs> you do that for every class. Come on. I do. <laughs> but we're going to ad lib our way through a pretty introductory conversation of what is the multi-level model? Why might we use it? What are some interesting applications? Mm -hmm. And where might you go to move beyond the basic multi-level model? And now that the statute of limitations has run out, legally, we can have this conversation. That's what I would like to do. Okay. Get rid of my other notes and let's do it. What do you got? We've left off a couple of episodes where <laughs> Gauss and Markov's corpses were in my kids' bedrooms <laughs> when they're away at school. And this is disturbing on many levels. <laughs> <laughs> Not the least of which is that I say goodnight to them each night and they respond. <laughs> <laughs> We're yet again going to bring in Gauss and Markov and talk about the assumptions underlying the general linear model. Now, we'll talk about regression as a member of the general linear model, but this scales up and down both ways. You can take it down to a two-sample t-test. You can take it up to a fully-blown MANOVA. Well, you can't do that anymore because you took it out back and killed Minova a couple <laughs> of done. years ago. Let's talk about regression and ordinary least squares estimation. We have a lot of standard assumptions and all of us have been exposed to these in one way or another. Mm -hmm. One of the big ones that often gets a hand wave or swept under the rug or thrown behind the refrigerator, <laughs> the assumption is independence of residuals, IID. 
The residuals are independent and identically distributed. The ID part of it is the baguette. All right, imagine you have an XY relation. You have a tilted positive bivariate distribution. You cut it at three levels of X. X1 equals one and five and 10. And you cut the baguette perpendicularly at that point, And you look at the side and those sides of the baguette are all equal. It's homoskedasticity, identical distributions. But the first eye, we often just ignore, especially earlier in training. And then we don't get back to it. And that's independence. And that's a Sesame Street kind of thing is no two residuals are any more or less related than any other two residuals, right? So remember the little song is one of these things is not like the other. One of these things is not like the others. One of these things doesn't belong. No two residuals are any more or less related than any other two residuals. They're independent. And this is a fundamental assumption of the general linear model is independence. Mm -hmm. Now, can I pantomime an XY axis for you? (laughs) Please. Let's say that we are interested in predicting alcohol use in adolescence. We are interested in the role of family conflict. And what we would like to know is what is the relation between conflict that the adolescent is exposed to in the home? And then we'd like to relate that to alcohol use. Picture in your mind's eye on the x-axis is family conflict and on the y-axis is alcohol use. And let's say we have 10 observations and each one lives in that two-dimensional space. So you go out on family conflict, go up to adolescent use, and that's where that kid's dot is. Imagine that it more or less looks like an ellipse and it's tilted positively and we can lay a regression line in there. Mm -hmm. And just making up a number, let's say the slope of that regression line is 0.5. And what that means is on average, a one-unit increase increase in family conflict is associated with a 0.5 unit increase in adolescent alcohol use. Okay. Now, the residual is the distance of each person's observed value from that line. It's observed minus predicted, y minus y hat. And that's where Gauss-Markov's corpses are saying those residuals not only have to be identically distributed, but they have to be independent. If I gather those 10 residuals together, no two are any more or less related than any other two. Mm -hmm. That allows us to get an estimate of what's sometimes called sigma squared. It's our mean squared error. Now picture in your mind's eye that there are five observations that are a little bit higher and there are five that are a little bit lower as part of that scatter plot. But the top five all belong to the same peer group. They're all friends. So let's say the top five are me and you and Bauer and Steinle and McNeish and we're all friends and we (laughs) hang out together. And then the bottom five are another five adolescents who hang out in their peer group. Mm -hmm. Now think about those five that are clustered up higher those five that are clustered down lower around the same regression line. And we have the same regression line, the same residuals. But if you're in peer group one, all your residuals are positive. If you're in peer group two, all your residuals are negative. They're all below the line. Mm -hmm. Now the Gauss-Markov corpses are saying (laughs) no two residuals are any more or less related than any other two residuals. On average, if I know your residual, I actually know a little bit about my residual. Right. Because we share that same peer group. And indeed, our residuals are positively correlated. This is a fundamental violation of the independence assumption. And this happens all the time in what we do. It absolutely does. A lot of times it is intentional. We have siblings within a family. We have 
have students within a classroom. We have patients within a physician. And then it also can happen unexpectedly. I was part of a project where we turned out to have participants nested within interviewer. And it turned out there were interviewer effects where some were better able to build rapport and elicit responses from adolescents than others. There are situations that are very common in a lot of what we do where that independence assumption is fundamentally violated. Okay, it absolutely is. Why do I care? The dots are still there around the line. So what that these five people are in the same peer group and these five people are in the same peer group? I still have 10 observations and Even if there's some dependence among them, where on earth is that going to even matter? Do you want to be naive? Is that a characteristic (laughs) you would like people to describe you? Dr. Hancock's a great teacher. He seems like a borderline okay dad, but oh my God, is he naive. (laughs) Why this is a problem is now those standard errors that you compute under the GLM are called naive standard errors. Oh. And why that is, we have not given them full information that they need, right? Let's make the GLM sentient. I always like thinking about that. Is what does <laughs> okay. it know? What does it not know? What does it think? What does it suspect? The system goes online on August 4th, 1997. Human decisions are removed from strategic defense. Skynet begins to learn at a geometric rate. It becomes self-aware at 2.14 a.m. Eastern time, August 29th. I don't have any real friends, and so mine are all statistical models. And dead people that have moved into your house. (laughs) Here's the sentient part. Mm -hmm. The model thinks that it has more independent information than it really does. And do you know where that's reflected? In the degrees of freedom. Mm. Is if you look at the total degrees of freedom for a regression model, you have error and model and total. And total is N minus one. Right. In our case, the model thinks it has nine independent pieces of information, Mm -hmm. but it really doesn't. It has less independent pieces of information than that because five kids are nested in each of two groups. Now, what is the sample size? Is it 10? Well, no. Is it two because of the peer groups? Well, no. So what we want to do is try to fall somewhere in between there. What are the number of independent pieces of information we have? We'll talk about that a little bit later. So how do you pay the reaper? What's the problem? If you just shrug and say, who cares? Gaussian Markov are dead. Well, (laughs) this is big ticket problem. Mm -hmm. Your estimate of mean squared error is wrong. Mm -hmm. Why is that a problem? MSE goes into the calculation of your standard errors. MSE goes into the calculation of your F statistic. Standard errors go into the calculation of your p-values on critical ratios. Standard errors go into the calculation of your confidence intervals around your regression coefficients. Mm -hmm. All of those are wrong because you have less independent pieces of information than what you told the regression model you had. My intuition, based on what you're saying, is that if we treated all 10 pieces of information as independent, there would be something at least closer to 10 in the denominator of whatever mean square error or standard error we have. On the other hand, if we viewed it as two, there would be something a lot smaller in the denominator. And the fact that it would be in the denominator would mean that if we treat all of those pieces of information as completely independent it's going to make our mean square error too small and our standard error is too small. And that would mean that we're going to just go, woohoo, 
when it comes to significance. Is that right? That's exactly right. On average, your standard errors are too small, your critical ratios are too big, and you elevate your type 1 error rate. Right. You overestimate the importance of effects, and that's a bad, bad thing. This is a clear and present danger in what we do. This isn't two pencil necks telling you, oh, I read on page 683 of this weirdo (laughs) book that sold two copies that this is an issue. This is big ticket kind of stuff. Okay, so you sold me on this being big ticket stuff because I'm naive. (laughs) So what I would imagine is that the degree to which those observations are dependent or similar, like in the example that you gave about peer groups, the more peers are alike, the farther the effective sample size is from 10, right? And that means that the more things could be screwed up. So what do we do about that? There are four things we can do. Mm -hmm. One is ignore it. Don't. Yeah. Your standard errors are wrong. Your F-test is wrong. Your confidence interval is wrong. And so other than that, I was a play Mrs. Lincoln. Milk Dutch too hard. Was a popcorn to stay. <laughs> Don't do that. Uh-huh. The second one is something we're not going to talk about now. We could have another episode on this. Would be really interesting. It's called a fixed effects approach. I think about this a bit as Thor's hammer. Thor, son of Odin. Really? You don't look like him. (laughs) I've only been talking about two groups. You would never do an MLM with two groups. Imagine you had 20 peer groups, and each group had five kids. So you got 100 kids, you got five kids in each group, and you got 20 groups. Well, one approach that has been used widely across a lot of areas of work is to say, well, if you've got group-to-group variability that is undermining that independence assumption, we literally, I don't mean this figuratively, I mean literally, Mm -hmm. can use group as a predictor in the model. We can estimate and remove any group differences that exist and look at what's left over. And there are many situations where this works quite well, Mm -hmm. right? And why I call at Thor's hammer is we are estimating removing all between group differences. If you're not interested in between group differences, if you're only interested in those within group differences, that works really well. Unless you're interested in Well, are there characteristics of the peer group that play a role in adolescent substance use as well? Well, you just hit it with Thor's hammer and they're all gone. Okay. So we're literally wiping out any group differences that exist. All right, that's number two. Number three, which is you go in on the back end and fix it. There are corrected standard errors. There's sandwich estimators, robust estimators, cluster corrected. Way back in the day for you old folks out there like me and Greg, there's a Huber white correction that was done decades ago and there have been some modernizations of that but here's the thinking if the standard errors are wrong and the standard errors are wrong by a known degree Mm -hmm. because we can get an estimate of what that nesting is and we'll talk about that in a moment if they're wrong and we know how they're wrong we can go in on the back end and fix them if they're too small we can goose them up a little bit if your overall test statistic is too large we can tap it down a little bit Mm -hmm. we're actually really really good at this with non-normal distributions. There's Satora Bentler corrections, robust maximum likelihood. Indeed, it's a very similar approach is let's take characteristics of the sample data that we have and go in after the party and clean up and say, we're going to make you a little bigger. We're going to make you a little smaller. And then we're never going to talk about this again. (laughs) 
that too works really, really well. And yeah. if you're interested in this stuff, go back and listen to the episode with McNeish because he talks a lot about the wonderful ways that we can do this. Dan's main argument is there are situations where we don't need the multi-level model. And what that means is we don't have a multi-level question that maybe the source of dependence in our data is a nuisance factor. Mm-hmm. There was a guy back in the 30s who robbed banks and his name was Whitey Sutton. And at one point, a reporter said, Whitey, why do you rob banks? And he said, because that's where they keep the money. (laughs) Why do we interview students in schools? Well, that's where they keep the kids. Mm -hmm. So maybe you have no nesting question, but it's really convenient to go into Mr. Johnson's third grade class and there are 30 kids and you can get data from 30 kids all in one shot, but now they're nested within that classroom. And so if it's a nuisance, if you do a full multi-level model that we'll get into in a minute, the multi-level model itself has costs. We make assumptions about distributions of things. We have more difficult methods of estimation. We need larger sample sizes to allow for maximum likelihood to do its thing. Mm-hmm. If it's a nuisance and you don't want to do Thor's hammer with the fixed effects, you just go in and clean up after the party. McNeish is exactly right. That works really well yeah. until it doesn't. And that brings us to our fourth point. You build a multi-level model because you have a multi-level question. The nesting is not a nuisance. The nesting is a motivating feature of your design that you built in so that you can empirically evaluate your theoretically derived hypotheses. I like that because if we do any of the other options, then we don't have access to whatever interesting questions might be able to be addressed by this. We can think of these data as now having levels to them. And in the example that you gave, we would say that the adolescents were level one and then the peer groups were level two. And so if I generalize from that, the classic example would be having students being level one and maybe classrooms being level two. And that goes on, right? Because classrooms can be nested within schools, which could be nested within districts and so on. So we can imagine a lot of levels of this particular nesting. It's probably good for us to try to keep our heads within like a two level model, at least for now. But I can imagine a lot of really interesting questions about level two or the relation between level two and level one, you know, something about peer groups or something about classrooms. And so I can see that there would be some really nice information that you would have access to in a more full model that you would otherwise either ignore or cleanse out and not have access to with those other strategies. Let's think briefly about, well, what is a multi-level question? Mm -hmm. Let's go back to the adolescence nested within peer groups. So ostensibly, we are interested in what is the relation between family conflict and substance use in adolescence. But we have them nested within peer groups. Maybe we have a situation where peer group is just coincidental. We went into classrooms, we gathered the data, kids have peer groups and clicks, they belong to them, we don't care. Mm-hmm. So we just want to correct it and go on about our business. But we have characteristics of the adolescent. So we have family conflict. We might have a whole variety of other kinds of child-level predictors. We could have anxiety, depression, family income, whatever that might be. Those are, using your terminology, and that is widely used in this area, level one. It's our lowest level of nesting. But we have peer groups. 
Now, what we might want to know is, on average, do some peer groups have higher alcohol use than other peer groups? So just for simplicity, imagine all the peer groups have five kids. They obviously don't have to. It's called an unbalanced design. And indeed, we can even have a subset of groups that only has a single observation. Mm -hmm. And so there are many, many ways that we can expand this. But maybe we see, wow, I've got 20 peer groups. Some peer groups have higher average use of their five members. Some have lower average substance use for their five members. There's, might I say, a distribution of these differences in the outcome. And I got to say, every one of us listening cannot resist the siren song of if you see variability in anything, we got to hanker and to predict it. If there's (laughs) kid-to-kid variability in alcohol use... We say, I wonder if we have kid-level predictors that can, in part, explain that. Mm -hmm. But scale that up. We have peer group-to-peer group variability in the average substance use of the kids in those peer groups. I wonder if there are peer group characteristics that might explain that. Are some groups more supportive than other groups? Are some groups more delinquent than other groups? Are some groups come from different kinds of homes than other groups? Can we predict it? So now we start moving toward a multi-level question. We have kid-level predictors. We have group-level predictors. But as you gave a teaser a minute ago, I wonder if group and kid-level predictors might interact with one another. Hmm. So if we talk about an it depends, what is the relation between an adolescent's family conflict and their alcohol use? Well, it depends. Are they a member of a supportive peer group? Or a less supportive peer group. Because support might moderate individual risk. Imagine you come from a home that has high family conflict, but you have a really tight group of friends who offer you support and scaffolding and coping mechanisms. Maybe that dampens that risk. Mm -hmm. But if you're at the very same level of family conflict and you have me and you as friends, you're screwed. (laughs) Because we're just going to make fun of you. In our peer group of two here. Um, (laughs) Hey, we're still a group. So to get my head around this, I'm actually thinking about in the context of this example, almost as though there are two data sets. One data set that's made up of what's going on within the groups and one data set of what's going on between the groups. So if I took our little peer group's average and wrote that number down on the side, and I took another peer group's average and wrote it down on the side, in the end, I would have a whole set of data, which would be the averages. And so on the one hand, I'm thinking about what's going on with those averages as though they are data. And then the other hand, I'm thinking about what's going on somehow within the groups. So I think about there as being two sets of data, but I imagine this is all going on at once. Exactly. I love the analogy, but that's not what's happening. Okay. Now, back in the day it was, Mm -hmm. before we had full information maximum likelihood, you would have kids in a classroom and multiple classrooms, and you might be interested in predictors of reading achievement. Mm -hmm. And you might have kid-level predictors of reading achievement, but you might have teacher-level predictors. How many years of experience do they have? Do Mm -hmm. they have an advanced degree? Are they in a private or a public school? Now, back in the day, they would take 
The kids in the class get their reading scores, add them up, divide by how many they were, and that would be the dependent variable in another regression. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of problems with that. Imagine one classroom had a mean of five and the other classroom had a mean of five and you're treating those as fives. Well, each of those has a variance and one classroom might have a really tight variance. All the kids are right around five, Mm. but the other classroom, some kids get a one, some kids get a 10, but you get the same five. When you do a means as outcomes model, you don't carry that variability with you and it undermines the model in really, really important ways. Okay. So I love the analogy of two data sets, but that's not what we're doing. What the model is going to allow us to do is get these model implied effects is that we're going to look at distributions of class means without really calculating specific class means. Very cool. I like your conceptualization of that because go ahead and scale that up. Let's say that you're looking at reading achievement in kids and you have kids in classes and you have kid predictors and teacher predictors. Let's say that you're looking at quality of life following medical treatment and you have multiple patients within physicians, but then you have multiple physicians. So what are patient characteristics? What are physician characteristics? What's the interaction between the two? You have siblings nested within family and you're looking at child predictors of some outcome, but you're also looking at parenting style within the family. I mean, we can do this all day long of multi-level questions. If you have a multi-level question and you have multi-level structure, going in and fixing it on the back end doesn't work. Because what you're doing is getting a known and correct standard error for an effect that you're not interested in because you're not disaggregating these effects. What does an MLM framework give you? It allows you to break this apart. It allows you to look at level one predictors, level two predictors, cross-level interactions. Does the kids' effect of family conflict vary as a characteristic of the group? But we can do one more thing. It's called disaggregation of effects, Mm -hmm. right? So let's go a little simpler again. Go back to the adolescent example. Imagine that we're looking at conflict predicting adolescent alcohol use. Let's say you have a score of five on the conflict scale, and I have a score of five on the conflict scale, but we're in different peer groups. Mm -hmm. And my peer group's average conflict of all five of us is three, and your peer group's is seven. So on average, your friends, they actually come from homes that have a lot of family conflict. And my friends come from homes that have less family conflict. Well, which is more important, that you and I each have five, or that in your peer group, you experience less conflict than your friends? And in my peer group, I experience more conflict than my friends. Might that have a contextual effect Mm -hmm. where you have a crappy night at home, but when you hang out at lunchtime, you're like the best family of your friend group. That's your referent. But for mine, I have exactly the same crappy night. But when I go in, it's like I'm the most impaired of everybody. And everybody's like, oh, dude, that sucks. We can look at your relative standing with respect to your group mean and isolate that as an effect. 
You'd used an example a long time ago in the context of growth models, and you said something like, you're really big for a chipmunk. The idea that the group to which you belong helps to determine what you are relatively and the relevance of that to the research question that you're asking. This is really everywhere in things that we talk about. And we had an episode on centering, and this is what came up, and there's a whole mm -hmm. literature on this, a whole way of going about doing this. This is how you isolate these effects. We joked about about Fora. Yes. That's huge for a chipmunk, tiny for a giraffe. And I think I told a story. I don't know if it survived editing. I was in a martial arts competition. There weren't enough to stratify on age. So they had a general pool. I made it to the final where the guy just cleaned the mat with me. <laughs> and at the end, which he unambiguously won, he pulled me in tight and said, you fight good for an old guy. <laughs> you know, and that's what this is, right? Because yeah. you could imagine that maybe your level of family conflict has a different impact on you depending upon how you normalize it. Mm -hmm. It was kind of a crack happy night, but oh my God, it's nothing compared to your buddies. Maybe that's less of a salient predictor than if you have the same crappy night, but you're the worst of all your friends as you feel much less supported. You feel like your family is far less stable. Now, what I just described is a within group effect, right. but we can take the mean of family conflict. Now here, we really do compute the mean. What I was alluding to before when we were talking is you said, well, maybe the mean of the outcome that we can use as a predictor. And we don't do that in maximum likelihood, but we actually really do compute the mean of the level one predictor mm -hmm. and say, well, do peer groups who on average have higher family conflict also on average have higher levels of substance use? That's a between group effect. Now to throw back to an earlier part of our discussion, if I group mean center and use those centered predictors at level one and look at relative standing, right? So I'm above the mean of my group, you're below the mean of your group. That's actually a within group effect. And that's what we get with the fixed effect approach. It's not kind of like it. It's not approximately. It's the same thing. If we controlled for group as a predictor and remove that mm -hmm. and then looked at our level one prediction, that actually is the within group effect. The problem is, is with Thor's hammer, we don't have access to the between group effect. And if you didn't have a question there, then you go, yeah, it's no loss. But if you do have a research question there, then you have lost that information at the between level, and then about the relation between what's going on at the between and within level as well. You can do some really cool things where you can look at an interaction between a within group effect and a between group effect. So you could say, does it matter on what your relative standing is with respect to your own group as a function of the overall group mean? Mm -hmm. So picture two groups each one of which a kid is two units above their mean, right? So the within group is the same. You're two units above your group mean. I'm two units above my group mean. But your group mean is five and my group mean is eight. So I'm two units above eight and you're two units above five. Does that elevation in the group mean in part moderate my two predicting the outcome and your two? I mean, this is crazy town cool yeah. of what we're able to do is we can look at a condition 
conditional within group effect as a function of between group overall level. I picture a bunch of ellipses thrown on a piece of paper with an XY axis. I could imagine all of those ellipses maybe having a negative orientation, right? So that the top is tilted a little bit to the left, but that the ellipses themselves are lined up in a more positive orientation. And for me, that would seem to imply that the relationship that's going on within groups between your variables is the exact opposite of what's going on between groups. And that to me is a really powerful image for not just wanting to get rid of the between stuff, but for understanding that the between stuff can actually be functioning very differently from the within stuff. It's called Simpson's Paradox. The example I really like, imagine that you have 50 ducks and you have 50 cats and you have 50 cows and whatever. You know, maybe you have 20 or 30 different species and you have multiple individuals within each species. You got ducks running all over the place. You got cows. I mean, it's mayhem. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Enough, I get the point. It's a super simple question. What is the relation between body mass and life expectancy? So you take the 50 ducks and compute the average body mass and average expectancy. You do that for the cows, the dogs, the mice. Those would be positive. On average, bigger animals tend to live longer. Hmm. Elephant versus cow versus little yappy dog. You say, oh, larger body mass is associated with longer life expectancy. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. But look within the ducks. And if you look just within the ducks, higher body mass is actually associated with lower life expectancy. The tilt of that ellipse is actually negative, and that holds for almost all species. So what is the relation between body mass and life expectancy? Well, it's positive between species. It's negative within species. I think that's a really good example of these things reversing Where if you go in on the back end and correct standard errors for that, you never have information about that relation. Yeah. Another interesting example that I like is between and within person is on average, people who exercise more have lower rate of heart attack. But within an individual, you're more likely to have a heart attack while you're exercising. (laughs) So, wait, what does that mean for me? (laughs) Well, you don't exercise at all, so you're fine. Okay, excellent. Picking up dog poop at 4 a.m. in the rain with a headlamp does not count as exercising. I get my steps in. (laughs) Carefully. This is kind of the general frame of what a multi-level question might look like and why you might be motivated to use a multi-level model. So all of this seems to depend on whether we say how similar the peers are in a peer group or (laughs) how similar ducks are or how similar kids are in a particular classroom. How do we even assess that? Oh, it's one of my favorite sample statistics, and it's called the intra-class correlation or the ICC. It comes out of Ed. It's on your side of the street. You guys did some good work on this. (laughs) Well, thank you. It shouldn't be a surprise that where did a lot of the generative research come from? from on violation of independence, it's a group of people who are interested in student-teacher-school effects on student outcomes. Where the data are inherently multi-level, right? And necessity is the mother of invention. You guys had to solve this problem. Sure. Hey, I got an idea. If we're interested in teacher effects, let's look at kids within classrooms and then multiple classrooms. And then 15 minutes later, you said, oh, crap. 
Gauss's corpse is grunting over there and we got to figure this out. The intra-class correlation is within class, right? Intra is within, inter is between, intra-class. I love the name of that. Yeah. Gauss and Markov say no two residuals are more or less related than any other two residuals. But you guys across the street said... Well, the kids in a classroom are going to have correlated observations because they share a teacher. Mm -hmm. So an interclass correlation is an estimate of, well, on average, what is the correlation among students who share a classroom? Well, that's a great idea. What should we call it? I don't know. How about an intra-class correlation? Very clever. So very briefly, what we do is estimate what is sometimes called a random effects ANOVA model or an empty model. Mm. What we do is we say, all right, we've got the total variability in our outcome. So let's say we're looking at reading achievement scores. All right, so mm-hmm. we have a standardized test and we have reading achievement scores. You and I are students in the classroom. You have a reading achievement score. I have a reading achievement score. Everybody has a score. We got a distribution of those and we have a variance of those scores. What we're going to do is just break that variance down into two components. We're going to get an estimate of the kid-to-kid variability within classroom. All right, that's going to be our level one variance. But at the very same time, we're going to get an estimate of classroom to classroom variability. All right, that's going to be our level two variance. These are actually additive. You can add the level one variance to the level two variance and you get the total variance. Mm -hmm. And in other disciplines, this is thus sometimes called variance decomposition. But picture in your mind's eye, you've got kid to kid variability within class and then you have teacher to teacher variability between classes. Well, if they're additive, right, as the level one variance plus the level two variance equals the total variance, additive things we can make ratios out of. And so what we're going to do is to say, well, let's take the between variance and divide it by the total variance. Mm-hmm. That's the interclass correlation. It's bounded between zero and one, and it has two interpretations. And I used to like the first one more, and now I like the second one more. The first interpretation is, of the total variability observed, Observed in reading achievement scores, what proportion can be attributed to between teacher differences? Mm-hmm. So let's say that you get an ICC of 0.2. I can say of the total variability observed in reading, approximately 20% are due to teacher to teacher differences. That is, some teachers have classrooms that have higher average reading scores, some have lower reading mm-hmm. scores. An equivalent one goes back to the original motivation, is what I like the best, is on On average, children who share a teacher have reading scores that are correlated approximately 0.2. That is that intra-class correlation. I like it. So how do we compute this thing? I don't think there's very much you need to remember out of calculus that you can't Google or get on Wolfram Alpha. The one thing that I think is most important Uh is the concept of limits. What happens as you infinitely approach something? Well, let's think about the ICC. It's bounded between 0 and 1. What happens as the ICC goes to zero? Well, the only way that can happen is if the between group variability itself goes to zero. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that the mean reading at the classroom level for teachers becomes more and more similar. Mm -hmm. There's less and less variability. Well, what happens at the limit? If there is no between group variability, that level two variance is zero. All variability is within group variability. 
That's our independence. Mm -hmm. There is no between group variability. It's all among the kids. So an ICC of zero, where you also have the alternative interpretation, on average, kids who share a class, their scores are correlated zero. That's independence. No two residuals are any more or less related than any other two residuals. Mm -hmm. Booyah. In and out. Nobody gets hurt. Gauss is grunting happily away. Mm -hmm. We're back to our GLM. But let's wander toward the other one. What happens as the ICC approaches one. Well, what that means is the within-class variability is going toward zero. What does that mean? Kids are getting more and more similar. They get closer to the same score, closer to the same score. At the limit, all the kids in the classroom have exactly the same reading score. There is no within variability. Mm -hmm. It's all between variability. And the ICC of 1.0 means, on average, kids who share the same class have reading scores that are correlated 1.0. Yeah. That is all between variability. And like everything in life, never do we fall on zero and one. We fall in between. You know, so it depends on your area of study. In my neck of the woods, you tend to get 0 0.1, 0 0.2. If you start getting into some ed settings, you know, you might get 0.3. This is an Agatha Christie opening paragraph to me. Mm -hmm. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I know Agatha Christie didn't write that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm crossing my authors. You say, we estimated a random effects ANOVA model. There was significant variability at level one. There was significant variability at level two. These combined to result in an intraclass correlation of 0.22, indicating that of the total variability observed on reading, 22% could be attributed to teacher-to-teacher -teacher differences. Given evidence for within-class variability and between-class variability, we now extend our models to include predictors at both levels. And now we're cooking with gas. Oh my gosh. Now we're bringing in kid level variables. We're bringing in teacher level variables, cats and dogs living together. It's <laughs> chaos. I keep coming back to, do you have questions that involve these kinds of things, right? And what I think you just laid out is that there are a lot of really valuable questions that are at the between level and a lot of really valuable questions that cross the barrier from the between to within. So it really is a very rich thing. And then things start getting really fun because maybe you have students within classroom, but you have classrooms nested within school. Mm. That's a three-level design. <laughs> so you're trying to model reading achievement. Well, maybe you want to know what is the role of child-level characteristics, teacher-level characteristics, and school-level characteristics. Mm -hmm. Maybe characteristics of the principal. Maybe teaching philosophy. Maybe something about school size or socioeconomic status or rural versus urban. But then we had a whole episode on MLM versus SEM for growth modeling. Maybe instead of kids within classroom, you have time nested within kid. Yeah. Well, everything scales up exactly to that. You have repeated measures nested within kids and you have kid level predictors. But wait a minute. What if the kids are in classroom? Mm -hmm. Well, now instead of having a single reading achievement score for each kid, you've got a trajectory of reading scores that are nested within class. And you could say, what are teacher characteristics that are associated with steeper accelerations in reading ability throughout the school year. Mm -hmm. And then you can say, what about teachers nested within schools? I mean, you can go nuts. 
These things can be extended really nicely to intensive longitudinal designs. We had a whole episode on that. What if you have repeated measures, but you got a boatload of them? You got 10 or 20 or 30 measures. Well, the MLM is really well suited for that. There's a fascinating thing called cross-classified models. Mm -hmm. So I'm working with a colleague of mine who has kindergartners and has three time points where they follow them in classroom, but she follows them in first grade, but they all changed classrooms. And they <laughs> oh all got, my God. and I was like, oh, for the love of God. Yeah. <laughs> can't you just get one observation for everybody like we did 20 years ago? This would be so much easier. That's called a cross-classified model wow. because you have time within kid and kid within class at kindergarten, but then you have the same time within kid but now the same kids are in different Oof. classrooms. So it's a cross-classified. This is such a powerful framework where nesting is not a nuisance. Mm -hmm. It's not a drunk guy at the party who you want to go away. It's not something that we want to go in on the back end and fix. To be super clear, McNeish is spot on on how many different situations. That's a totally appropriate way to go. Yeah. There are whole fields where the fixed effect is a totally appropriate appropriate way to go because it goes to what you alluded to a couple times. Those correspond to your question at hand. Mm -hmm. But if you have a multi-level question, you have to have a multi-level model. And I can even imagine in more complex designs that there might be some aspects of the model that, frankly, you would like to control for or correct for, but other aspects, right? So I don't care about level three. I got to accommodate level three, but I don't really care about it from a question standpoint. So I could imagine that these things kind of come together as the model complexity goes up. That is a great observation. And we've done that in our own work. I worked with a guy at West Point where they had time within soldier, within squad, within platoon within company. Wow. You can't afford to buy that car. That is my Audi A8 <laughs> that I'm not going to buy the month I sent two kids to college at the same time. <laughs> Sometimes you have to concede one battle so that you can marshal your resources to fight another battle. What we did is, well, there are platoon to platoon differences, but we're going to use a fixed effect right. at the platoon level, but we're going to allow soldiers to be nested within squads and squads to vary among squads. So you're exactly right. Those are sometimes called hybrid mm. models. And then everything we know about nonlinear models, say you had a binary outcome, they just become log odds. It's just like a logistic regression, but now in logistic regression, we assume independence, but mm -hmm. we don't have to. We shrug and say, well, maybe you have, was a child held back or not? Yes or no. And you're looking for kids within classes. Well, now it just becomes a probability model. We have odds ratios. We have log odds. We can backward transform to take our low jets into probability. We can plot implied probability curves, those beautiful S curves. Mm -hmm. We can do counts. We can do zero inflated Poissons. Now, these get increasingly hard, but we can do them. 
So I like all of this because I don't like our hands to be tied, right, when it comes to our research questions. I want the models that we use to map onto the questions as closely as possible. And what you've just done is showed us a little bit about what's inside the Pandora's box, whether it's with regard to the complexity of the design or a whole host of varied outcomes and distributions and link functions and all of that. Being the person that I am, I have a hankering to take this into the structural equation modeling world. You had to go there, huh? I know. I can't not go there. I know. I got to tell you, have SEM, will travel. <laughs> There's a nail. There's a nail. Whether it's more complex measured variable models, things that look a little bit less regression-y and more path model-y, I could imagine that we want to know about the relations among a set of variables that subscribe to a very specific theory and whether or not those relations themselves differ as a function of whether it's classroom characteristics or teacher characteristics. So I could imagine this with path models. And then God forbid, and maybe I shouldn't even say this, what about variables we can't see? What about latent variables? I mean, can I have confirmatory factor models with data of this structure? I'm not even sure what that means. I can't explain this because Gauss has no blood in his corpse, but he just <laughs> blushed a little bit. <laughs> it's the coffee. Could be the coffee. <laughs> but do you know why? Gauss Markov now just applies at each level. Hmm. Within level one, we assume the residuals are independent, identically distributed. Within level two, we assume the random effects are independent and identically distributed. It just scales up. Well, hmm. if it scales up, that also means the distributions of the predictors are fixed and known, which means we still have the perfect reliability assumption. So family conflict, perfect reliability. Hmm. Peer group support perfect reliability. Getting uncomfortable. Single dependent variable because it's a regression model. Well, what about mediators? So let's say you find that family conflict predicts adolescent alcohol use. Well, why? There's not some magical, if your dad yells at you, it forces alcohol down your throat. What's the mediator of that? So for every reason we would want to leave the general linear model to move to a path analytic framework or a multiple indicator latent factor, we would want to do that here. The poke in the eye is there are like 38 problems we got to solve to do that. <laughs> and maybe this is a good ending point because there is a multi-level CFA there is a multi-level SEM. Some would like you to believe that it behaves the same way as a multi-level regression. Mm. That is, no, 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 we can make random effects of this. We can have fixed effects. We can have cross-level interactions. It's all solved. We can, but it doesn't always behave the way <laughs> that we would kind of like it. I don't even know what some of it means, frankly. So I'm going to kick that can down the alley and we can have another conversation because it is cool. There is pretty well-developed methods of multi-level factor analysis. Indeed, this goes way back. Mutain has a really creative paper back in the early 90s mm -hmm. where he literally computed a within-classroom covariance matrix and a between-classroom covariance matrix yeah. and then simultaneously fit factor models using multiple group to the two. It's brilliant. Yeah. Now, we have maximum likelihood methods that allow us to not do that, but I'm tired and my coffee is cold <laughs> and I think we should stop here. Thank you for this because our hands were tied legally for the I last two I was going to say, thank the great state of Arizona <laughs> for having a two and a half year statute of limitations. Uh, or was it Massachusetts? I don't know. It's our, oh, it's damn. Our, 
That's right. What's clear here is I have no memory of anything. <laughs> Always sharp. Sharp as attack. All right, my friend. Bring it home. We dedicate this show to Dan McNeish. <laughs> there you go. Sorry, I did it again. Greg was taking a huge swig of Diet Coke, <laughs> and there it came out. I think you do that deliberately. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to tell your friends to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they go for something that tries to take them to a whole new level. You can follow us on X Twitter, where we are at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a message, find organized playlists and show notes and syllabi, listen to past episodes, and other fun stuff. And finally, you can get cool Quantitude merch, like shirts, mugs, stickers, and spiral notebooks from Redbubble.com, where all proceeds from non-bootleg authorized merch go to DonorsChoose.org to help support low-income schools. You've been listening to Quantitude, the podcast that, honestly, probably should have had a lot more gag orders, really. Today's episode has been sponsored by... Hello, gentlemen. Dan McNeish here. Yep, that's right. My statute of limitations has expired, too. I believe that I will be handling the sponsors today. Today's episode is sponsored by the Intraclass Correlation, which in your case would be zero, since intra the two of you, there is absolutely no class. And by the Sandwich Estimator, which is not, as Patrick might think, a job description for someone who works at Subway. And finally, by R, the software that for Bostonians is even more of a pain in the ass to pronounce than it is to use. Oh, and uh, one more thing. Where's that lemur? Giffy? Giffy. Hi, Dr. McNeese. It's Jiffy, actually. Yeah, what, whatever. How do you feel about warm weather and palm trees? Ooh. Well, grab your flip-flops and hop in the Corvette. I call shotgun. Oh, and, and while we're on the road, I need to write up those sponsors that I just did and submit up for publication. Um, okay. I smell a psych methods. This is most definitely not NPR.